0: Well, what a sobering thought it is to know that God is about to speak to us, that we have the awesome privilege uh, to hear him as we read his word and as his word is explained and applied to our lives through the message, that it is not uh, simply uh, the word of a man, but it's the word of God. And I'm so grateful that uh, I'm a part of a church body that understands that, that, um, that I'm not just a guy that gets up here and tells you what to do, it's um, how you should live your life, but we all stand here, sit here together, and are instructed by the Word of God. And so I just happen to be the one that gets to be God's mouthpiece, but uh, I'm just as much of a student this morning as you are. Wanting to learn what God wants me to learn, so I can be who He wants me to be. And so, let's take our Bibles and turn back to uh, the book of Romans. And uh, I think the guys are going to get the lights on here uh, sometime soon. Um, that's okay. You'll get your. You'll be able to see your Bibles in just a moment. But for those of you that are joining us for the first time this morning, we've been going through uh, the book of Romans, verse by verse, uh, line by line, chapter by chapter, and. We are in the practical section, uh, the second half of the book in Romans chapter 13, and uh, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 8 through 10, 8 through 10. So Romans 13, starting in verse 8, Paul writes, O nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in all this, excuse me, up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Father, this is truly a profound um, principle here in regards to loving our neighbor. It's a very familiar expression, a familiar phrase. I'm sure we've all heard it before, but I pray that this morning your spirit would illuminate our minds uh, and our hearts to understand the depth of what uh, Paul was saying here um, and then how that uh, should change the way that we live our lives this week. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, ever since the coronavirus pandemic broke out and the quarantines and the lockdowns quickly followed and then all of it was exacerbated by the racial unrest in our country with all its killing and rioting and looting and demands for the police to be defunded, uh, there have been solo renditions and orchestral compilations of a popular song from the 1960s that have gone viral. You probably have heard uh, a rendition or two of this song recently, and it's a song titled, What the World Needs Now is what? Love, right? You've heard that song. It begins with this line, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. I spared you singing it. I didn't want to subject you to that, but you can hear the Melody, I'm sure in your, in your mind, but um, this song has become the new kumbaya or the we are the world where everyone gets together and they sing and they hold hands and they sway back and forth and, and it makes them feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Well, in spite of that, I would say that that song got it right. Love is what the world needs right now but it's not the sweet, sappy, sentimental kind of love that that song refers to. What the world needs now more than ever is for those of us who are Christians to express and emulate to those around us the sincere, selfless, sacrificial love that God demonstrated to us by sending his son Jesus to die in our place to pay the penalty for our sinful rebellion against him. That's what the world needs, and we've been learning about that love here in the book of Romans. If you go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, one of the most well-known verses in this letter that Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. More, much more then, having now been his blood, justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were what? enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Later on in chapter 8, verse 7, Paul told us that before we came to know God, that our mind... Was hostile toward God. In other words, God loved us when we hated Him. I looked up a definition of hate. Hate is a feeling of intense or passionate dislike for someone or something. This enmity is often expressed by hostility. We've seen a lot of hatred and hostility in our country lately. Leaders hating other leaders because of their political views, or citizens hating other citizens because of the color of their skin. And while it may be just more noticeable to us in light of the current chaotic circumstances that we're living, it's really nothing new. Our modern vernacular has a growing number of terms like hate mail, hate crimes, hate speech, hate groups. Or just haters. The opposite of hate is what? Love. And that's what our world needs right now. Because according to Paul, love is the answer to all the problems that we're presently facing in our world today. And in these three verses here in Romans chapter 13, Paul makes it plain and simple that if you truly love someone, you won't ever sin against them. I mean, that's just enough right there to, to kind of chew on for the rest of the week, isn't it? That when you, when you think about it, what Paul is saying here is if we truly love others, we won't sin against them. And so if we sin against others, it's simply an evidence that we don't really love them or our love for them is imperfect. You see, if we all faithfully and consistently obeyed this basic command to love our neighbor, it would resolve all the problems in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, in our workplaces, in Washington, believe it or not, and in our entire world. And Paul's words here are reminiscent of the words of Jesus who clearly stated that love for God and love for others are the two most important commands ever given, and together they summarize all the other commandments that God gave to us in his word. Turn back with me just quickly to Matthew chapter 22. All three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include um, a reference to Jesus' answer to the question that was posed to him about what is the greatest commandment, Matthew chapter 22, verse uh, 34 uh, is is Matthew's is where we find Matthew's account. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And as you know, the, the Pharisees um, weren't content with the 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 Ten Commandments. Uh, they they added a whole bunch of other commandments, a bunch of other rules and regulations had become very legalistic in their um, uh, application of the law, and uh, so they were always having discussions about well, what's really the most important law of all. And so they posed that question to Jesus and he said to them, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice verse 40. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And so back in Romans 13, Paul zeroed in on the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, which is a quote from Moses found in Leviticus 19.18, but he also expanded on that last statement that Jesus made in verse 40, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. I think I maybe would just say here, um, just to clear the the air when it comes to loving your neighbor just for starters some some people say that in order to do that in order to love others the way uh, we love ourselves that means that uh, we need to learn to love ourselves first have you heard that before there, there's popular. It's a popular teaching. It's a popular concept. I've heard songs about that. That, that you can never love others unless you love yourself. And so, uh, the emphasis is on self-love, which, by the way, is the essence of sin. We got to be careful there, right? Um, self-love is really why we sin. But the whole idea is that you have to have a good, strong self-esteem in order to be able to love others. Well, Christ command here to love your neighbor as yourself clearly assumes that we already love ourselves, and, and usually more than we love anyone else. And so he's capitalizing on the fact that, that he knows we already love ourselves. Paul brings us out in Ephesians chapter five, verse 28 and 29, he says, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes. Again, Paul's doing the same thing. He's appealing to the fact that every guy loves himself. And so he's saying, hey, just love your wife like you love yourself. Take care of your wife like you take care of yourself, and everything will be good. Why? Because when we're hungry, we feed ourselves. When we're thirsty, we get ourselves a drink. When we're sick, we take medicine or we go see a doctor. We're, we're totally committed to taking care of ourselves. And so what Jesus was saying and what Paul was reiterating here is that we must treat others with the same care and concern that we naturally show to ourselves. We need to learn to love others like we love ourselves already. And when we're faithful to do that, we will invariably fulfill the rest of God's commands as to how we are to treat others. And so instead of trying to keep track of all the things that we're supposed to do or not do to other people, hey, if you just keep one command in mind, there's only one you need to keep thinking about, should be in the forefront of your mind, is I need to love other people the way I love myself. And if I do that, the rest of it will take care of itself. Because if we truly love our neighbor, as ourselves, we will never do anything to harm them. We'll never dishonor them, we'll never murder them, we'll, we'll never commit adultery with them, steal from them, slander them, covet their stuff. In other words, and this is a, a profound thought, that if everyone kept this one law perfectly, if all of us perfectly loved others like we love ourselves, there would be no need for any other laws. You ever thought about that? And Paul is, again, in the context here of talking about our responsibility to the government and those authorities uh, that God has placed over us and the laws that they make to, to rule us. And again, just putting into practice the law of God and his word is what every government should be doing. And so it seems appropriate that he would talk about the law of love, and that's the title of today's message. Well, let's take a closer look here at how Paul elaborated on Jesus' teaching regarding the second great commandment. And uh, as you know, if you've been studying uh, with us uh, over the last uh, couple of years, that this is not the first time Paul mentioned the Christian's obligation to love others. In fact, as recently as chapter 12, if you remember back in verse nine, he addresses this subject of love. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, Cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another, uh, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. These are all uh, evidences of love, ways, practical ways that we show love to one another. And it seems that his exhortation to love others in chapter 12 was directed more to our fellow believers Um, whereas his exhortation here in chapter 13 seems to be directed to unbelievers. And so chapter 12 was probably more uh, focused on the church in specific, where now he's focusing on the society in general. And so we come to verses 8, 9, and 10, and I think you can divide these uh, verses into two sections that really just outline Paul's basic point which was regarding the obligation that we have as living and holy sacrifices to love others in order to be pleasing and acceptable to God. In other words, this is all part of being that, that um, presenting our bodies as living and holy sacrifices or acceptable to God, which are spiritual service of worship. This is all part of our worship to the Lord, how we worship and glorify and honor God is by loving our neighbor. And so, the first phrase in chapter or verse 8 we could call the compulsion to love and the rest of the section the rest of the verses we could call the completion of love so let's look first of all at the compulsion to love notice what he says here in verse 8 oh nothing to anyone except to love one another now Paul's instruction that he just gave about a believer's obligation to civil authorities seems to have triggered his thinking concerning uh, a believer's obligation to the rest of society. So you've got your obligation to the government, to, to the authorities, but you also have an obligation to the your fellow citizens, if you will. It seems to be the idea here. And you might assume that since he just got done talking about paying taxes, right, you remember that? Verse seven, render to all... Uh, well, verse 6, for because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing, render to all what is due him, do them tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And so you might assume that because he was talking about taxes and owing things to people, that this phrase is just a continuation of his teaching about a believer's financial obligation. But... Based on the verses that follow, I think we could agree, we would agree that Paul's focus here is not on money, it's on love. Nevertheless, I I do want to take a moment to consider the basic monetary principle conveyed in this opening phrase, where he says, Owe nothing to anyone except. To love one another. Now, that phrase, owe nothing to anyone, is sometimes interpreted to mean that it is wrong for a Christian to borrow money or to take out a loan or to have a mortgage or a student loan or a car note. Some Christians believe it's a sin to have any kind of debt. But I believe what Paul was saying here is that believers should never leave their debts unpaid. In fact, I appreciate the NIV's translation at this point. Uh, the NIV says, "Let no date, excuse me, let no debt remain outstanding." Some of you may have the NIV, and you are seeing that. Let no debt remain outstanding. I think that's uh, probably a, a better translation here, or at least maybe a, a, a more of an, a, 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 an expansion, um, an application of what Paul was saying here, because the Bible does not. Forbid borrowing money, but it does warn against the dangers of debt and extols the wisdom of not going into debt and not being responsible for someone else 's debt. The proverbs are filled with uh, exhortations in this regard proverbs eleven fifteen he who is a guaranteer for a stranger will surely suffer for it, but he who hates being a guaranteer is secure. So this is the whole idea of putting up security for someone else. Proverbs 17, 18, a man lacking in sense pledges and becomes a guarantor in the presence of his neighbor. Proverbs twenty two twenty six: 26, do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debts. And then Proverbs 22, 7, probably the most important proverb regarding um, the dangers of of debt, and that is the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. So it doesn't say you can't take a loan, you, you can't have somebody lend you some money, but you will be a slave to that lender. That, that's just the way it is. That's the truth of the matter. At the same time, we have to Acknowledge that God gave the Israelites specific instructions about how to be gracious and generous lenders. Um, according to the Mosaic law, the Jews were not allowed to charge interest to their fellow Jews, particularly uh, those who were poor. And you can look back in Exodus chapter 22, uh, verse 25, for example. Uh, Exodus chapter 22, uh, verse 25. Let me just read that for you. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. It's interesting, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, uh, verses seven through nine, uh, Moses actually warned uh, the Israelites not to withhold a loan to someone if they knew that uh, the Sabbath year was coming up. In other words, yeah, you might look and say, well, hey, next year is the Sabbath where all debts are cleared and paid off and I don't want to give a guy a loan because then I won't get paid back. He says, don't do that. If the guy needs it, you lend him the money. Even if uh, you might lose out on that money, might, you might not ever get paid back. Psalm 15, verse 5, uh, David is talking about the kind of person who has an intimate walk with the Lord and has intimate fellowship with the Lord, he says, he does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. And so God was clear that he didn't want his people charging their fellow people, if you will, fellow believers, uh, a whole bunch of interest but they were allowed to charge interest on loans given to foreigners when engaging in trade and commerce in order to enlarge their wealth. And some, you know, I, I know that we have presently and we have those that have maybe retired from the banking industry or um, people that are more mortgage brokers. And, you know, if, if we're saying, hey, that, you know, interest is sin, charging interest is sin, then we got a bunch of people who are in sin. Every day they go to work, right? Because they're a banker. They're, they're a mortgage broker. Well, Deuteronomy twenty-three nineteen says, you shall not charge interest to your countrymen, interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. You may charge interest to a foreigner. And of course, you remember the parable that Jesus told in Matthew twenty-five twenty-seven. you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with what? Interest. Obviously, that's talking more about investing, maybe than borrowing. But, but the Bible allows for lending, and uh, allows for it. If it allows for lending, it would also logically allow for borrowing, right? And investing, and even earning reasonable, lawful, uh, a lawful amount of interest, as long as you're not being greedy or taking advantage of someone else. And God promises to, to bless the unselfish, gracious lender. Psalm 37, 25, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends and his descendants are a blessing. Psalm, excuse me, Proverbs 19, 17, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. And he will repay him for his, own, for his good deed. It's like... What Jesus taught, uh, you know, what you've done to the least of these, you've done, what? To me, those who are poor and needy. Matthew five forty-two: give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Luke six thirty-five: but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And again, If lending money is allowed and and even encouraged, then it stands to reason that borrowing money is not prohibited necessarily. I think most people today view borrowing money or or taking on some debt as a necessary evil in order to live and, and do business in today's economy. Someone said it this way, quote, many businesses could not operate without borrowing money to invest in such things as buildings, equipment, and raw materials. Many farmers could not plant new crops without borrowing money for seed and fertilizer. Most families could never afford to buy a home without taking out a mortgage. When borrowing is truly necessary, the money should be repaid as agreed upon with the lender promptly and fully. That's the point. The key is making sure that any debt that we acquire is manageable, which means that you can pay it back on time and in full. Now, Having said all that, I do think it's important to say this, that for those of us who live in an extremely materialistic, consumer-oriented culture where we're constantly being enticed and pressured and even hoodwinked at times into financing everything. We need to avoid living beyond our means and racking up a ton of debt and being bad stewards by paying more for things than they're actually worth or worse being bad witnesses for Christ by not paying our bills on time or in full. And it doesn't help when our, our government continues to increase the national debt at an alarming rate and really sets the standard for everyone else in the country. While well, they're doing it. Why don't, so it must be okay for us to do. If you're newer to our church, you may not know that, that by the grace of God, we as a church are debt-free, that we don't have a mortgage that we have to pay every month. And uh, how that all came to be was when we first started the church 21 years or so ago. Uh, the the leadership at the time, the men that God had raised up to establish kind of the, the, the direction of the church, um, just said, "Hey, you know what? When it comes to buying property, and this is before we had property, before we had a building, uh, we were just meeting over in the elementary school in the cafeteria there, and." Uh, they said, hey, why don't, we, why don't we just make a commitment right now that while we know it's not a sin to take a loan from the bank, uh, let's, let's just see if we could do this debt-free. And, and uh, it was really the, the heart of, of what we see in the scriptures, which is God seems to always provide for his work through the joyful, generous, sacrificial giving of his people. You just see that pattern throughout the whole Bible. Um, and Hudson Taylor embraced that with his ministry in China when he said, God's work done God's way will never lack God's provision. And so we thought, hey, that would be, that would be fun to try, uh, to, to step out in faith and, and trust God. And yeah, it may uh, make us have to do things a lot slower than we would all wish we could, and uh, it, it creates its own set of challenges, um, ultimately, it might be a good example to our body um, that, uh, hey, let's model for them. Let's not you know, do what everybody else does is just go take a loan and buy a piece of property and build a building. Again, not that that would be wrong, not that that would be sinful. I think the scripture allows for that. In fact, I didn't have really a strong conviction either way uh, when we started Lakeside, but I'm thankful for the men that God surrounded me with that really challenged me to think about it uh, in a way I never had before. And so it's been really fun to watch how God has provided for all that we are enjoying here today um, on this, uh, I guess, 11 or so acres that we have and and these two buildings that we've been able to build uh, through the joyful, generous, sacrificial giving of you, your giving, and those that have been a part of our church for all these years and uh, God gets all the glory for that. And um, and so, um, what, a, what a blessing. And uh, that's why, uh, really, one of the reasons why, uh, if you look at our church and the size of our church and go, man, you've got a lot of pastors for a church this size. How, how do you do that? Well, one of the reasons is because we don't have a mortgage. Um, and uh, another reason why we can support all the missionaries that we do, because we don't have a mortgage. And so, Again, I'm so grateful that God has uh, led us down this path and uh, has been very faithful uh, along the way, and uh, he's just continued to bless our body with the resources uh, to be able to do this, again, in his way, in his time. And, uh, and so um, I just wanted to let you guys know that should, hopefully that's an encouragement uh, to you um, Recently, we had a decision to make as elders, and I thought it would be uh, this would be an appropriate context to share this with you. We've been thinking about giving you an update on our finances, and uh, I thought this would be an appropriate time just to share with you that as we, uh, as as you know, when this coronavirus hit and the government asked us to uh, not meet, um, uh, gather here in our building, and told people to stay home from work, and uh, they knew that was going to create. Uh, problems in the economy. And so they came up with this thing called the PPP. Uh, Those of you that are business owners, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the the, the Paycheck Protection Program. And they offered small businesses a loan um, that could be forgiven if it was utilized for to be able to keep your employees employed. And so they didn't have to get furloughed, furloughed or fired or uh, go on unemployment. And so this was their way of injecting some money into the economy because they knew that they were asking businesses and churches to sacrifice uh, what, uh, their means of income. And so as we were thinking about it, I mean, this was the, the big uh, red flag was, hey, church shuts down. What happens to the giving, Right. And uh, what about people that maybe lose their jobs? What about people that are out of work? What about people um, you know, whose livelihood gets cut off, and they're not going to be able to give uh, to the church, let alone uh, take care of their family, right? And so not knowing what the future held, we talked about it. We prayed about it as elders and said, hey, this is money the government is offering us. We understand the situation. It's a loan, yes, but it's, uh, it seems to be a unique circumstance that we could take and then we could um, give back if we don't use it. But it would be good to maybe be wise and at least have the money to fall back on if we needed it and uh, have it forgiven. Um, Kind of a a loan without interest kind of situation. And so, um, anyway, we went ahead and uh, applied for that, and by the grace of God, we received that. And uh, that money's in the bank right now, and uh, we are still waiting to see how things play out here with this whole pandemic, but uh, it may be that uh, we end up uh, applying that money to the different uh, ways we're able to as a church, or uh, we just give it back. But uh, that's kind of where we're at. And again, I know every church, again, it's a gray area. Uh, some of you are sitting there aghast that we would have even considered doing that. Others, you're like, hey, that's, that was smart. I'm glad you did that. <laughs> um, again, it, it's a gray area. And uh, whether it was right or wrong, we were praying about it and asking the Lord to give us wisdom, and you continue to pray with us about how we can best uh, uh, honor the Lord in that. And if you have any questions about it, um, don't ask me, because finances is not my strength, okay? Talk to John Anger, talk to some of the other elders. Uh, they, they are way more savvy when it comes to those kinds of things than me, but uh, I thought we would make you aware of that. I also want to just say this before we move on from this rabbit trail that I'm on, uh, taking advantage of this little expression, oh, nothing to anyone. Um, Listen, if you are trapped in debt right now, which we know that's the case for a lot of people in our country in particular, um, and you are, are in a tough spot where you aren't able to pay your bills uh, on time and in full, please reach out to us and let us help you. Um, we have um, people in our church that are uh, committed to um, providing financial counsel for those that are in uh, tough, tough times financially. And uh, we would love to be able to have the privilege of sitting down and assessing where you're at and uh, helping you come up with a plan um, to, to pay off that debt over time uh, and to get, get free of that. And um, uh, I, I know that um, there's, a, there's a great burden that's on you if you are one of those people. So don't just suffer in silence. Um, make that aware to, to one of our deacons, one of our elders. And again, we'd love to sit down with you and help you and counsel you from God's word, how you can um, honor him with your finances. I really think one verse sums it all up very well. It's Psalm 37:21. It says, the wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. And I think our goal as Christians should be to work in order to provide for ourselves and not have to depend on others to support us, and and that we should also always have some money left over to share with those who are in need. And I'm just drawing that from uh, Paul's example and uh, in First Thessalonians chapter four, verse eleven, second Thessalonians chapter three verse eight, he said, "Hey, listen, I, I had every right to uh, be supported by you, but uh, I didn't want to um, do that. I wanted to support myself, and so that's why he was a tent maker, right? And so he would preach all day and uh, make tents and pray all night. And uh, that was just how he did it. And he also instructed the, the believers in Ephesus and Ephesians chapter four, verse twenty eight. I love this um, practical instruction. He said this, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. And so I think that is God's design for all of us, that we would always have a little bit left over, that we're always ready when a need may come to us that we can meet that need, um, my parents have been a, a, a tremendous example to me and to Kelly and our family when it comes to how to manage not your money, but God's money. Uh, and they've got a little, uh, a little savings account, separate from, you know, they've got a checking account, and they've got a savings account, but they've got a special little kind of secret savings account, if you will, that uh, whenever the Lord provides them uh, any extra money, they sock it away in that little, Special account, and that is only to be used to meet special needs that come up, whether that be a, a missionary or, or or a ministry or maybe someone in their community, someone in the church, and uh, they they have actually have a checkbook for that account, and they pull it out and write a little check and meet that need, and it's just been a tremendous example of of what it means to be. Uh, a gracious, generous giver, and always having something set aside to help when the need arises. Well, having said all that, there is one debt that we will never be able to be free from, that we'll never be able to pay off in our lifetime, and that is the debt of love to one another. Again, notice he says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Again, I don't think Paul was thinking primarily about finances here, but he was reminding believers of their obligation to love others in the same way that God has loved us. Those who have experienced the love of God in our lives, those of us who have had God's love poured into our hearts, we owe a debt of love to our fellow man. And obviously this starts with one another right here with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we've always already looked at that when we studied Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 13. There's all sorts of verses that command us to love one another, to love fellow believers. But this love, this debt of love, also applies to unbelievers, and not just those who love us or who are lovable, it also includes our enemies. And he touched on this, Paul touched on this in Romans 12, you remember verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Uh, verse 20, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Again, Paul was just repeating um, the, often, uh, the instruction that Jesus often gave about uh, how we relate to our enemies. Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Um, Luke records an an expanded uh, discussion that Jesus had about loving our enemies. Luke chapter six, verse 27. Excuse me, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Verse 30, give to everyone who asks of you. Whoever takes away what is yours, don't demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 makes a distinction here uh, between God's people, fellow believers, and the world. Galatians 6.10, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we'll reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are the household of the faith. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.15, again, just emphasizing that we have a duty, a debt, to unbelievers. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. So it's not just, I'm not just saying this is how you're supposed to act with one another here in the church, in the four walls of the church. No, this is for everybody. And this love, this debt of love here that Paul is talking about. is is more than emotions, It, it involves action. And the fact that we're commanded here to love indicates that it's something that we can choose to do or not do. I mean, if it was just an uncontrollable feeling that swept over us from time to time, then we couldn't be held accountable. But clearly, we're being held accountable here by God through Paul, The word that Paul used here for love is guess what? What would you assume it is in the Greek? Agape, which describes God's unconditional, sacrificial, selfless love that he demonstrated by sacrificing his own precious son in our place on the cross, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So this kind of love that Paul's referring to is not motivated or activated by any virtue in the person being loved. It's totally unearned, undeserved, and it's unceasing and it's unchanging. Isn't that the kind of love that God demonstrates towards us? It's unearned, it's undeserved, it's, it's unceasing, it's unchanging. And so loving others like God loves us is an ongoing never-ending duty that we must fulfill every day of our lives to everyone in our lives. We'll never get to the place where we can no longer, or where we no longer owe love to others. We can never say, well, you know what? I've loved you enough already. Sometimes we'd like to say that, right? We, we, we think that anyway. I've, you know what? I've loved you enough, man. You're, you're on your own. Um, Or, you know, I don't need to love them any more than I already have. Or, you know what, I love them once already and I think I'm gonna let somebody else love them for a while. Doesn't work that way. Why? Because God is always bringing new people into our lives that he wants us to love. And and there are those that we have known for a long time who he calls us to love in new ways as they go through the, the ups and downs of life. So no matter how good a job that I may do loving you today, guess what? I'm still gonna have an obligation to love you better tomorrow. And no matter how good a job you may do loving one another today, you still owe each other more love tomorrow. Every time we meet someone or see someone, we should say to ourselves, I owe them love. I need to show them the love of Christ. I I have this great and wonderful debt that I need to pay them. Now, all of us have probably at one time or another owed somebody some money, Even, even if it was lunch money, you know, a few bucks, right? Somebody spotted you for a burger and you say, yeah, I, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get you back, I'll, I'll pay you back, right? You, you owed somebody something and, and you know that the first thing that entered, entered your mind whenever you saw that person is, oh, I, 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 got, I, I got that, I'm, I'm going to get that to you, right? You, 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 I owe you that money. Well, we need to live that way. We need to consider ourselves spiritual debtors. And the first thing that should enter our minds whenever we see someone, whether it's at church or work or, or school or, or at Kroger or at Walmart or at the gym or, you know, wherever, is that we, we owe them love. If you go out to lunch today, for example, you walk in and the first person you see as you walk in the door of that restaurant uh, behind that mask, of course, right? You see that person, and you the, is the hostess or the host, and and you should think, you know what? Boom! I owe that person love. I need to love that person, the way God has loved me. When you go to work tomorrow, and you walk in, and the first person you see maybe is your secretary or your boss, or maybe it's the the security guy at the at the guard shack or whoever. You, you immediately, you should think that guy, right? I owe that guy love. I need to to love her the way I love myself. And so this is the compulsion of love. This is the the way we should love. Now, you see, we got five minutes left for the rest, but the rest is really self-explanatory. It's what I've called the completion of love here, Notice what he says here, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Again, our neighbor here is not just the person who lives next door. I think we're, we know that, right? It's anyone we, we cross paths with who has a need, including those that are not like us, especially those who don't like us, or maybe we don't like them. That's our neighbor, right? The Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, uh, is, a, is a classic illustration. Um, and, and I think it's interesting here. Uh, someone pointed out that Paul used the word, uh, the Greek term eleilon for one another. He says, anyone except to love one another for he who loves his neighbor has to fill the law. Um, he uses a different word there, heteron. And so eleilon means loving someone Of the same kind where heteron, neighbor, means loving someone of a different kind. Again, this is just a great reminder that we're to love those who are like us, of course, but we are also to love those who are not like us. We have a duty to those who maybe have different beliefs, different tastes, different values, different preferences, different convictions, different mannerisms than we do. And Paul's saying, listen, when we love our neighbor, we fulfill the law. And I think what he meant by that is that by following God's command to love others, like we love ourselves, we are being obedient to all the other commands that he's given us as well. He wasn't implying that, that Christ's new commandment to love one another had abolished the law or replaced the law and made it obsolete so we don't have to abide by the law anymore. On the contrary, obeying the command to love Others, or love our neighbor, makes it possible to keep all the other commandments. Someone said it this way, love fulfills what the law requires. And so the law and, and, and love are not mutually exclusive. They're not incompatible. God intended them to complement each other. John Stott said it this way, love and law need each other. Love needs the law for its direction, while law needs love for its inspiration. That's good. Love and law need each other. Love needs law for its direction, while law needs love for its inspiration. If you want to know what it looks like to love others practically, just look at the Ten Commandments. Notice what Paul says, for this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in order to prove his point that loving your neighbor fulfills the law, Paul quoted four of the Ten Commandments, the seventh, the sixth, the eighth, and the tenth. So he's kind of jumbled them up a little bit. Um, not sure why, but it was under the inspiration of the Spirit, so I'm good with it, Um those commands are summed up in, again, Leviticus 19.18, um, where, where Moses said, hey, love your neighbor as yourself, which, which uh, again, sums up all of God's commands regarding relationships with our fellow human beings. If you've studied the Ten Commandments, you know that they can be divided into two sections, right? You've got the commands one through four are all about our relationship with God, uh, all about our vertical relationship with God and then uh, commands five through 10 uh, are all about our love for others, our horizontal relationships with other people and so it really just a reminder that all of life is about loving God and loving others. It's why we're here, it's, it's, it's what we should be doing and so this is how God intended us to live, to love him and to love others and so since Paul was focused on our obligation to others here, He cited commands from the second half of the Decalogue. And his point is this, if we truly love others like we love ourselves, it would be unthinkable for us to commit adultery with them. With their spouse or to betray your own spouse or to take someone's life or to steal from them or to covet their stuff. If we were faithful to keep God's law to love others like we love ourselves, again, there would be no need for any of these laws, why? Because we never do anything, we would never do anything to hurt or harm others, that's what Paul said in Ephesians 5, again, no one ever hated his own flesh. But sadly, we often fail to love others like we love ourselves, and that's the reason God gave us these commands to govern our relationships. And so the law and love serve one another. They support one another. Notice what Paul says there in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Again, if you love someone like you love yourself, then you will treat them like you want to be treated, which means you always seek to help rather than to hurt or to harm One commentator said this, love is the seeking of the greatest possible good for my neighbor, even at the greatest possible cost to myself. Love is the seeking of the greatest possible good for my neighbor, even at the greatest possible cost to myself. And so whenever we wrong another person or sin against them, that simply reveals a lack of love for them. And if we loved each other perfectly we would never sin against each other. So that's been good for me to think about this week as I've thought through this passage and was preparing to share it with you this morning is that that when I'm sinning it's 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 really what's at the root what's the sin behind the sin it's a lack of love. I'm I don't love that person the way I'm supposed to love them. Whether that's my wife or my kids or a fellow believer or my neighbor And so Paul just concludes here by saying, Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Again, he's just he's just making his point. He's repeating the, the previous assertion that he made in verse eight that love fulfills the entirety of God's law. And again, that's what is is, is communicated throughout God's Word. Matthew seven, twelve, and everything. Treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Paul said in Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. James 2.8, if however you are fulfilling the royal law, according to scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Let me close by reading a short story that I think vividly and powerfully illustrates what, Paul was getting at in this passage. When Louis Laws became warden of Sing Sing Prison in 1920, the inmates existed in wretched conditions. This led him to introduce humanitarian reforms. He gave much of the credit to his wife, Catherine, however, who always treated the prisoners as human beings. She would often take her three children and sit with the gangsters, the murderers, and the racketeers while they played basketball and baseball. Then in 1937, Catherine was killed in a car accident. The next day, her body lay in a casket in a house about a quarter of a mile from the prison. When the acting warden found hundreds of prisoners crowded around the main entrance, he knew what they wanted. Opening the gate, he said, Men, I'm going to trust you. You can go to the house. No count was taken. No guards were posted. Yet not one man was missing that night. Love for one who had loved them made them dependable. Kent Hughes follows the story up with this sentence. He says, of course, this should be infinitely more true in relationship to God's love for and through us. God's sacrifice for us, his love lavished upon us, ought to make us completely dependable in our showing love to the world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this simple text, but profound truth. And we thank you that the fact that you have loved us makes us able and dependable to love others the way that you call us to in this text. We know it's impossible for any of us to love like this unless we've embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, unless we rely on the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And so may we not leave here trying to muster up the strength and the willpower in and of ourselves to to pull this off, because we can't. We'll fail even more miserably than we already have. And so may this be just another reminder of how desperately dependent we are upon you. and the love that you've shown us, you love, or we love, because you first loved us. And uh, may that just be what motivates us and drives us to love others. Um, and Lord, may, may our love for lost people in particular um, catch their attention. May it blow them away. May it make them ask questions. Why would we love them so much, even when possibly they've hated us so much? And that we would have the joy of sharing with them the good news that, that, that you loved us when we hated you. And uh, that uh, you love them as well and want to save them and forgive them and uh, have them spend eternity with you in heaven. So give us opportunities this week to share the good news of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.